Grace, peace, and mercy are yours from the triune God. Amen. I don't know how you spent COVID tide. Uh, Perhaps you learned Italian or how to bake bread. Maybe you improved yourself physically or spiritually. And if so, good for you. (laughs) I myself watched an inordinate amount of television. I'd like to be able to say it was all PBS specials and masterpiece theater, but I'll confess to you, I watched 12 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, a survivalist reality show called Alone, and a whole lot of movies I'd already seen more than once. I think I watched certain movies because I often needed a good cry during that time. And there are scenes from certain movies that no matter how many times I watch them, I can't keep from shedding tears all over again. Art can do this for us. Art can excavate a buried thing inside of us and hold it up until our eyes adjust to the bright truth of it. One of those uh, was the movie The Mission, Set in 18th century, Robert De Niro plays a seemingly irredeemable mercenary and slave trader in South America who kills his own brother in a fit of jealousy and says to a Jesuit priest that he is beyond saving, that for him redemption is not possible. Yet the priest gives him penance anyway to carry a large net full of the trappings of his past, armor, weapons, gold, and walk with it on his back for miles, carried up steep cliffs and even waterfalls, an easy metaphor for the dead weight of his own shame. After an exhausting, painful journey, when De Niro finally hoists himself up to the top, he is cut free from the burden of the net by someone who had every right to instead cut his throat. And as the contents fall down the cliff, his character collapses into sobs. And so do I every time I see the scene. Why do I consistently cry at scenes in movies that show the catharsis of mercy and forgiveness? Because the road we're on is too long and the cliffs we must climb in life are too steep to keep carrying our garbage in a ratty net behind us, especially when grace and mercy and forgiveness are just within our reach. And yet, Lord, to whom do we go? To whom do we go for grace and mercy and forgiveness? Such a shortage of those things in our culture right now. Where can we ever lay down the burdens of our own errors and shortcomings, or must we carry them in a ratty net behind us and pretend everything is still fine? Well, the medieval church knew that we humans carry around the weight of our own failures, and they very astutely realized there was a lot of money to be made from the anxiety we have about the things we have done and the things we have failed to do. So by the 16th century, the church had slipped into some pretty bogus practices, one of them being the selling of indulgences. 
Actually, my former parish, House for All Sinners and Saints on Reformation Day would always hold a selling of indulgences bake sale as a fundraiser. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, indulgences were little get out of sin free cards that the church would distribute at a certain cost. Uh, don't laugh because this is fundraising genius. I mean, not for nothing, but it did pay for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Well, when Martin Luther had enough of this and other such nonsense, he made a little list of grievances, 95 of them to be exact, and he walked over to his local church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nailed those grievances to the door. It was October 31st, 1517, 504 years ago today, the start of what would be known as the Protestant Reformation. And there's a lot to celebrate when it comes to the Reformation, yet what do the texts assigned for Reformation Day that we just heard talk about? Sin. What we get in our readings is not a victory parade for the Protestant Reformation, but a lot of talk about sin and law. All sin and fall short of the glory of God, and all who sin are slaves to sin, and that through the law comes the knowledge of sin, 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 sin. A word so weaponized against so many of us. A word used by the priggish to label the Hester Prins of the world. A word connoting the naughty things some people do in secret, the things for which they should feel deep shame. A word for those who have fallen for siren songs and taken what is not yours and had pleasures that good people know better than to indulge in. You who have eaten the Turkish delight that the white witch offered. No wonder we often recoil from the word or misuse it as something only those people indulge in. After all, Christianity pawned off as nothing more than a sin management program is what was sold to so many of us. As if Jesus came to earth to hand human beings a moral elimination diet. But Martin Luther had a way of talking about sin that makes a whole lot more sense to me now. To him, sin was bigger than simple immorality. Sin was more than the big bad things others do that we can feel superior for not doing. Sin, according to Luther, is the self being curved in on the self. Say in curvatus in se. Sin was more than the big bad things. Sin was the self turned in on the self without a thought for God or neighbor. In that case, it can be alcoholism or it can be passive aggression. It can be the ways I manipulate others to get what I want or it can be adultery. It can be embezzling funds or it can be that feeling of superiority I get when I'm helping others. British writer Francis Spufford describes sin as the HPFTU, the human propensity to mess things up. We're in church. Um, sin is the fact that my ideals and my values are never enough to make me always do what I should, feel what I should, think what I should. And the law that we heard about in our readings, the law is anything that reveals those shoulds to me. The shoulds in our lives are the things that make us see how far off the mark we are. And feeling convicted by the law is desperately uncomfortable. 
It looks like every feminist who in secret hates her body and every televangelist who's really addicted to porn and every social worker who doesn't actually look into the eyes of the homeless man they pass every day on the corner, they all know what the law can do to us. How cruel the distance is between our ideal self and our actual self. And that feeling of not ever really hitting the mark, whatever the mark is, is the feeling of the law convicting you. And Martin Luther knew what it felt like for the law to convict him, accuse him, leave him with nowhere to rest. And what really sparked the Protestant Reformation is that feeling that way, Luther read a passage from Romans where Paul says, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are now justified by his grace as a gift, as a gift. And so he no longer accepted what the church had for so long taught that we are saved by fulfilling all the shoulds and in doing so, bridging for ourselves the gap between our ideal self and our actual self. The medieval church had pawned off law as gospel and Luther dared to know the difference and then he became a preacher of grace and that changed the world. This isn't just a medieval thing, by the way. What passes for preaching in most settings, liberal or conservative, is usually some version of, here's the problem and here's what you should be doing about it, which I have never in my life heard as good news. <laughs> so, in celebration of Reformation Sunday, I would like to offer us what I call Nadia's field guide for spotting the difference between law and gospel. You can tell the law because it is almost always an if-then proposition. If you follow all the rules in the Bible, then God will love you and you will be happy. If you lose 20 pounds, then you will be worthy to be loved. If you live a perfectly righteous, green, eco-lifestyle, then you will be worthy of taking up space on the planet. If you never have a racist or sexist or homophobic thought, then you will be worthy of calling other people out on their racism and sexism and homophobia. The law is always conditional and never anything anyone can or ever has done perfectly. That's why it's a trap. When we treat law as if it will save us, as if it is gospel, there can never be flourishing because under the law, there are always only ever two options, pride or despair. When fulfilling the shoulds is the only thing that determines our worthiness, we're either prideful about our ability to follow the rules compared to others, or we despair at our inability to perfectly do anything. And either way, it's bondage, as Paul says in our letter. And that's why the gospel is different. The gospel is more Wizard of Oz than that. Because the gospel is a because, 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 because proposition. Because God is our creator. And because 
we rebel against the idea of being created beings and insist on trying to be God for ourselves. And because God will not play by our rules, and because in the fullness of time when God had had quite enough of all that, God became human in Jesus Christ to show us who God really is, and because God would not be deterred, God went so far as to hang from a cross we built and did not even lift a finger to condemn, but said, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. And because Jesus Christ defeated even death and the grave and rose on the third day, and because we all sin and fall short and are forever turned in on ourselves and forget that we belong to God and that none of our successes guarantee this and none of our failures exclude this, and because God loves God's creation, God refuses for our sin and brokenness and inability to always do the right things to be the last word, because God came to save and not to judge, Therefore, therefore, you are saved by grace as a gift and not by the works of the law. And this truth will set you free like no self-help plan can ever do. And yes, the road we're on is too long and the cliffs we must climb in life are too steep to keep carrying our garbage in a ratty net behind us, especially when grace and mercy and forgiveness are always ours and are always in reach. Amen.